Revelation chapter number 11, and uh, I want you to look at some scriptures that this is a third week that we've been talking about these same scriptures. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. But look at this part, and we're going to read it again because we've already discussed it. It says, But I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy, they will preach, they will share God's word a thousand two hundred and threescore days. In other words, 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, I know some of you right there, you automatically went, Brother Steve, you're reading from a Bible, and, and I don't understand it sometimes because of the three score, but yet you had to memorize four score, and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth to this. You'll, you'll quote Abraham Lincoln, right? All right, in the Gettysburg Address, so don't let this stuff fool you. It's 1,260 days. The Bible says, and these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks or lampstands that are standing before God of the earth. I love that. If you were here Wednesday, you should be excited about that. It says, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man would hurt them, it says, they must in this manner be killed. It says, these have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their preaching prophecy. It says, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and will smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. As always, God, we thank you for the moment that we have in worship when we sing and praise. We thank you for the moment that we have in worship when we look to your word to understand more about who you are. God, we ask you, as Brandon has prayed twice already, God, we can't do the things that you can do. Our power is so limited. Lord, in times we're so invaluable, but yet you saw so much value in us. God, please, Lord, use us today. Let it be an extraordinary day. Let it be a day when we leave here that people would not say, what a great message, what a great song. But when they leave, let them say, what a great God that we serve and a God that we have. Lord, let us be hungry and thirsty and desperate for righteousness. Which in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things together. Amen. You can be seated. If you were here last Sunday and the Sunday before that, we talked about three things, and we actually tried to get three things in. We got one thing in on that first Sunday, and then we got another one in, and then we're going to try to get this last one in today. Uh, I always try my best. Uh, I know that sometimes when I get to preaching, I get so excited, and I got all this stuff in my heart and in my mind, and I'm almost you're, you're at the point where you're about to pop. I can see it. You're like this latex balloon that's being filled up and filled up and filled up, and then it's like, you know, and then I've lost you. You're just like, done. But I don't want it to be difficult. I try my best to use what God has given me in my life in earthly illustrations. I try to take the things of everyday life in order to explain what God is showing us in these scriptures too because I'm, I'm not as country as you are. I'm beyond as country as you are, okay? I'm far past all of that. I, I'm, I'm so so needing of God to break it down in just simple terms. I would love to have an American Southern translated Bible. You know what I mean? Uh, and we do have a little bit. Paul says he reckons that the sufferings of this present time can't be compared. And Jesus said he's going yonder to pray and uh, that they should stay here. So it's a little bit. But looking at the scriptures, sometimes it can get overwhelming. And you look at it and you go, all right, what was he talking about? Look at this picture. We, we've got this tribulation period that's going on 
uh, at earth, okay? It's in the future. It's not happened yet. And people say, well, how do you know that it's not happened yet? Because the rapture and the taking home of the church, the body of Christ, has not happened yet. And not only that, according to all those Old Testament prophecies that say that things must be fulfilled, there are things that are going to be fulfilled. And the Bible says you won't know that these days have come until the son of perdition, the man of sin, shows himself in the temple, talking about the Antichrist, okay? And so, you know, e- even in some of our, your Bible, some of the Bibles you may have, you may study, you've got books that you know are 66 books. There are some people that say that there are more books that needed to be in the Bible and canonized, and they're called the Apocrypha. They're in between Malachi, uh, the ending of the Old Testament, and the Matthew in the New Testament. But even Jesus Christ himself did not refer to those books when he said that they were divinely inspired. The Bible says that he referred to what? He says the book of Moses and the prophets were in the law. And what he was talking about was the law and the prophets. He even told them that they have the law and the prophets, let him hear them. But he never acknowledged those historical books. Because why? They're good for us, but they're not divinely inspired. And you say, why would you say that, Brother Steve? Because the book of Malachi, says that God stopped the speaking with his people and he was quiet with them for at least 400 years. And so those books are not heavenly inspired books, although they are great historical books. You say, well, what are you talking about? I heard a guy the other day talking about he and his wife. And when he and his wife get into an argument, he said, she gets very historical on me. And he said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, she gets historical. She starts bringing up all kinds of stuff that I did. And so historical things are are good, and they're good for our learning. There's a book called the book of Flavus Josephus. Flavus Josephus was a first century historian, and he wrote down the things that he saw. But it's not a divinely inspired book by the Holy Spirit of God breathed into men to write those things down. So there is a difference. And that's why they don't make it in the book, and I hate to say it in this way, but they don't make the cut into our canonization of the book is because they're not spoken by God. They're not God's words spoken, but they're actually Andrew's words that spoken about some event that took place according to the Hebrews and according to the Israelites. And so we get this picture, and you're going, all right, Brother Steve, I don't get some of this revelation stuff sometime. And i got to encourage you to tell you this, that if you're a first-time Bible reader or a first-time person that's ever gotten into the Bible, it's going to be difficult because you never start at the end when you're trying to understand something. You've got to have some kind of base, and you've got to have a foundation. And in studying the Bible, I always try to tell everybody, go and read the book of John first. Read St. John first, and then read the other Gospels. Understand as much as you can about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because he is the key that puts the whole Bible all together. No one in my whole life ever explained it better than my father that explained. He brought to a Wednesday night service one night. He had hinges. He took a hinge off of a door, and he had one hinge that was on the door and one hinge that was on the frame and he had the pen that put them together. He said Old Testament is on the frame and we need to get connected to it but the New Testament hinges off of that but if you don't have Jesus Christ in the middle then you don't have that support. And see that's a great illustration to understand you have to have Christ. So if you understand Christ and then you go back to all of creation and know that Christ was there even in the creation that you know Christ was there with Moses he was with Abraham, he was with uh, David, he was with Joshua, he was with all of those people, then you can put these things together. And then what's amazing is one of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Hebrews. It wraps everything up about Jesus Christ, not only being our sacrifice, but him being our great priest, our great temple, everything about it, amen? And so you put this stuff together, and you get into the book of Revelation, and people go, oh, I can't get that. 
It's because you got to have that foundation too. And so I have to go back a lot of services and try to build off that foundation. We have a good and a more sure word of prophecy, the Bible says. And what that means is, is Peter himself said that we have a more sure word of prophecy that was given to uh, men by the Holy Spirit of God when they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. What it means is, is in the New Testament, when it's a more sure word of prophecy, it means that all those things that God said in the Old Testament had become fulfilled. And so therefore, what we have in the word of God is more sure and more established than it was when it was being written because it's being fulfilled. You got that? Amen? So when we have that, we look at this picture. In the middle of the tribulation period, we've understood about seals being opened. We've understood about the judgment of God's coming up, uh, judgment of God that's coming upon the earth. And then all of a sudden, we had this, this thing that happened in chapter number 7 about people being sealed by the Spirit of God, people, or by the seal of God, and then people being saved. We had all of these images going on, and then a fourth of the earth the grass and the, the trees were burnt. A fourth of the rivers had turned to bitterness. A, a fourth of the seas had turned to blood. And you look at that and you go, man, that is just crazy. And so all of a sudden, this is the way God is. All of a sudden, in the middle of all of our reading, we get to chapter number 11 of Revelation. And God says, all right, it's almost as like as he can see us and he sees our, all, our, our confusion or our latex balloon brains about to explode also. And he goes, all right, I'm going to take time. A time out, the last one. And I'm going to show you what those things were. And in the middle of the tribulation, church, three and a half years, because it's going to last for seven years. You say, Brother Steve, do you think that is actual years, or do you think that is just a time in itself? I believe it with all my heart to be years, because all of the other 483 were exact years. So God's not going to go, I'm going to do this right here this way, and I'm going to do something totally. No, he's going to have it the same. And in the middle of that, it's three and a half years, it's 42 months if you want to look at it, and you go, Brother see, why does God deal in all of these times? He's not bound down to our time. No, 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 that deals with us. He deals with time because he's talking to us, right? But why does he do the three and a half years, and then he turns around and says in 42 months? Because God is very precise. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll understand that the floodwaters were upon the earth for so many months. If you look, you'll understand that God dealt with things in, when he spoke about judgment and dealing with them in months. The Bible says there would be five months of the plagues against Egypt. The Bible says that there would be five months of the plagues that were in the book of Revelation. So God dealt in months with those pledges. But then God says, it would be 1,260 days. And what that is, church, is that for 1,260 days, his witnesses had a purposed plan, and they had a ministry, and they were going to be sharing. And listen, we're going to talk about next, next Sunday, and it's this right here. When God is finished with me, God will be finished with me. And God has a use for me and a purpose for me. If God had a use for a crow to let out a yelp so it would tell on Peter, if God had a use for a donkey to tell Balaam, you need to stop, buddy, there's something in the way, if God had a use for a donkey for Jesus to ride on the back, God's got a good use for me, amen? Because God's used a couple of donkeys that I know of, <laughs> right? Listen, 1,260 days, and in the middle of it all, here's the image. Stay with me this morning. Jesus stands he is clothed in clouds because his glory has to be shielded. Amen. He is standing with one foot on the seas and he is standing with one foot on the land of the earth because the Bible says that the earth is not Satan's but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He stands on both of those uh, 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 characteristics he's standing there and as he looks he does what he says he's got a rainbow about his head which talks about his mercy and grace and he's holding in his hand 
a little book. And the little book is open. Not opened, but open. It has been opened. God give us a great revelation. Let me say something. I'm going to take a time out. Can I take a time out? This doesn't count in the preaching hour. Okay? But let me say this. You don't need to go out here and begging for God for a new revelation. You need to just get the one and accept the one he's already given. Everybody wants to come up today and you get this fancy preacher and he's on TV or she's on pre- uh, TV and they're all trying to tell you on the radio that God's given me a brand new word and God's given me a brand new revelation when we can't even get all of this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we only know in part. We can't even get all of this. Why in the world would you be begging God for a new thing? Amen? Why don't you say, God, how about giving me this and helping me understand this? Amen? Because there's enough in here, I'm telling you, to keep you busy for the rest of your life and to keep you reading always. He says he has that book in his hand, and what does he say? He's standing on the sea and on the land, and he says that there will be no more delay. He said time will be no more. What he means is there will be no more delay in God's judgment that is coming. And he's telling them, and he says, John, eat the book. Don't, don't eat the book. But he told John to eat the book. He said when you eat the book, it's going to taste sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. And what he meant was it's going to be wonderful to your taste because when you receive it, it's wonderful. But listen, when it actually comes in and you digest and understand what God's word says is that if you reject him, that he will cast you away from his presence forever, for eternity, then it becomes bitter in the stomach because why? We want people to be saved. Is there any Christians in here that want people to be saved? Do you know that since the day that I got saved, no one had to tell me, no one had to push me, no one had to prod and poke on me and tell me that I should desire that my friends be saved. When I got saved, I went and laid in floors of homes. I went and laid, uh, set up in the cars all night with people sitting by a phone. Listen, I even drove by one night by the payphone. Some of you younger you probably know what that is. I went and drove and, listen, kept sticking quarters in there and quarters in there because I was trying my best to witness to a friend. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God revealed to me the tasted good in my mouth when I received it. But when it went in, what if other, people's don't, what if other people don't receive him? It's set up in my stomach that I didn't want them to die and go to hell. And I wanted them to be with me. I wanted them to be with the Lord. And, man, I'm telling you. So we talked about the one book, and we talked about two witnesses. We're getting to this third thing today. It will be done. Amen? Say it. Say it shall be done. Here it is. Already pushed the button, so we got to do it. Three measurements. I have waited for three weeks to, see, to speak about this. And I have held it in and just held it in and tried Three measurements. The Bible says, look at Revelation 11, verse number 1, and there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod. It says, and the angel stood, saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. The Bible says there was a reed given unto him, and some of those reeds that were given unto them would be what they would call a cubit. A cubit is about 18 inches long versus our 12 inches of a foot. It would be 18 inches long, a foot and a half. Bible says in Ezekiel chapter number 36 all the way through 38, it talks about the millennial temple. It talks about the one that will be resurrected and rebuilt and all of this stuff. And I want you to know something today. I want you to really, really pay attention because the next of the message and stuff is really understanding storyline and what's going on in our world today. They're preparing for another rebuilding of the temple. And I don't know if you know much about Jerusalem or Israel. It's not very big. It's actually smaller than New Jersey. But we talk about it all the time. As a matter of fact, there are churches, if not hundreds or thousands of churches today, that are meeting at the exact time as we are right now. And they're talking about something that happened in a little bitty area over there in Israel. 
They're talking about the Son of God that came in that place, walked in that land, that he died in that land, but he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. They talk about it constantly. There is an argument. When we went into Israel a few years back, we walked in, and in Jerusalem itself, you're so excited, you're so pumped, and you're going, man, I can't wait to get to Jerusalem because it's going to be so awesome. In order for when we get into Jerusalem, when we walk in there, man, I can't imagine. You know, the song that you heard this morning and, and, and Madeline singing that song, and it, man, I just wanted to stand up and go, gone. You know, that's an awesome song. And just singing the Lord and the Spirit. And some of you said she sings like an angel and stuff like that. The angels don't sing. They can't sing what she sings. Amen. She's redeemed. And here it is. You go into this place and you think it's going to be like that. You're thinking Jerusalem's going to be like every church service that you've ever experienced the presence of God in all wrapped up in one. And when you go there, it's like a huge letdown. It's like the most heaviest cloud hovering over place that you could ever go to. There is no peace. There is no comfort. It's actually divided into four different pieces. And that's just what we kind of know of, a Christian quarter, an Armenian quarter, that we have a Jewish, a Jewish quarter, and we have a Muslim quarter. And they're all fighting over their quarter. They're all fighting over their property. You go into one area, and you go into the Christian quarter, and you feel calm and relaxed, and you feel safe. You go into another place, and you're despised because of the Word of God that you stand on. It's different. It's very different, okay? And when you go in there, you're expecting to see all these wonderful, beautiful things. And you see this huge thing called the Western Wall that we call the Wailing Wall. And at the Wailing Wall, listen to me. You young people need to very, very much pay attention this morning because you're going to see it even more in your lifetime. But at the Wailing Wall, they're standing there every day. Even now as we speak, in the night hours, rabbis stand there with their prayers and their books of prayers, and they're standing in front of a wall that's a stone wall. And if you look at this stone wall, there's huge stones down at the base of it all. And I'm talking about a stone that would measure from here all the way over to this side that would actually be this thick and about this tall. And you think, man, those stones are so huge. And then as you work your way up, you can see that the stones got smaller. And in your mind and in my mind in the southern thinking we would go, evidently they got smarter because they had the bigger ones at the bottom and then they got like, man, we can't tote these things anymore and we're going to put some smaller ones up. But it's because the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed and even the city of David over 18 times. And even during the history of all of Jerusalem, you understand that there was a time of the Muslims, there was a time of the Ottomans, there was a time of the Seleucids, there was a time of the Ptolemies, there was a time of the Crusaders. All of this timeline come through, and when the new people would come in, they would tear down and build up, tear down and build up. But at the base of it all are these huge, they're called Herodian stones from King Herod. They had them quarried and brought out, and they would wheel them in. They would put a big old huge wooden wheel that, if you can imagine, kids, you remember the old put the square in this hole and the star in this hole, and they had a square in it, and they'd put wheels on those huge stones and roll them over with oxen, and they would place them. And in between all of those stones, there are people there right now praying, God, restore the temple. God, restore the temple. There are young men that are going to have a bar mitzvah probably tomorrow as they come in with a huge Torah, a huge scroll that's wooden cased on the outside as a big, huge coffin. And what's inside is only five books of our Bible. 
the first five books of your Bible, but it's so big and so huge, and they stand there as a young Hebrew boy, and they read from the Torah, they read from the scroll, and they pronounce that they're the manhood. Now, all these things are happening, and they're praying. That's why it's called the Wailing Wall, is because they can't go up on top of the Temple Mount anymore, because in history, whenever Muhammad and the, the ones that came in and attacked, they built a mosque that's there. It's called the Dome of the Rocks. Huge. It's got mosaics all over the top. And people are fighting. And when we walked up as Christians, tried to go to the Dome of the Rock, there were people with AKs and other things that were standing there and telling us that we could not go any further. You say, well, how dare someone like that? The Jews were the exact same way. They told the Gentile, which would be all of us, they said that you can only go so far, you can't go in. Same exact thing. Can you feel that? They're fighting over it. They're arguing over it. It's almost like an 0929 school bus with girls all over it, and they're fighting. Huh? Anybody ever drive a school bus? Yes. There's tension, drama, tears, clawing, and anger, frustration, and cell phones. It's bad. And in that city, there are people that are praying that this temple would be rebuilt. Listen, you say, well, Brother Steve, I wonder what it would have been like. And we don't have the actual actual truth of it all. I wonder what it would have been like to have walked in to that temple of Herod's temple. This is a, just a 3D model that someone has made. This actually comes from what's called the templeinstitute.org that is there in Jerusalem. And I want you to think that you're an Israelite in those days and you walked in and saw this massive construction, that you saw this. I want you to understand while you're looking at that, that we got to go all the way back to the days of the tabernacle this morning in order to understand all about this temple. And see the Roman soldier that just marched in front of that. The Bible even told us it says that the outer courtyard would be trodden down by Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles are come in. And you look at this and you go, man, that's just amazing. And how, how would they build that structure back and how would they do it? And I don't, if you look there, those are lampstands. And even in Israel when they have the, uh, uh, the celebrations and they have the Feast of the Tabernacles and they go down to the water and draw the water and pour it on the altar where the blood and the water would mix together, those lights would light up all of the temple area. And, and the Jewish rabbis at that time, the women would get up on the top of the porticos and the women would observe and look and the men would be down and they would be dancing before God and they would be shouting praises and the Hallel, they'll be quoting the Hallel from Psalms and they would be giving God glory and praising him, all this stuff and you look at it and you go man that would have been amazing and that veil that would be there and uh, this is uh, actually a beautiful picture of the way it looks like when you come there except for where the temple is it's not there and you go brother Steve I can't imagine that, well I want you to understand something and you may not believe me but you can research it all on your own Right now, at this very moment, and about 12 years ago when I was there, they are already drawing out the plans and the construction for rebuilding the next temple. And so many people sit in the church and go, Brother Steve, well, what does that have to do with us? It has a whole lot to do with us because it speaks about it in the Word of God. And if you don't understand this, if it speaks about it in the Word of God, should we not understand it? And the Bible teaches us these things are happening. They've actually got the plans laid out. And in the Temple Institute, it's going to take place. They have huge plans. This is the drawings of the new temple that is going to be built. Now, while you're watching this, I want to kind of bring you back in time a little bit and talk about the tabernacle itself. All of these things came out or came from or forth from the tabernacle. They're actually drawing out the plans 
to build this temple. They're actually drawing out the suits. They have the priest's garment. They have the ephod sewn in them. They have the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, snuff dishes, which is actually what the lighting of the lamps and putting them out. They have the articles of the bowls, the golden bowls. Everything's there. As a matter of fact, when we went there, there are signs all through the Temple Institute that says, do not take pictures do not photograph do not do this you know and I'm sitting over there just taking all this stuff in and I'm observing observing it and you know I look over and dad's going click 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 and uh, I was glad he did it because he could go to jail and that's fine but uh, I got the pictures from uh, but you can see they they're not just saying okay we're going to do it someday they have things ready all they need in right now church listen to me all they need is the go-ahead and you say, really, see, what does that matter? What does it really matter? I don't understand why it matters to me. When they get the go-ahead to do these things, the Bible says that the church is going to be called out. The Bible says when this prophecy actually takes place that the church is going to be called out of here, caught out of here, raptured and taken out of here. And when we see these things coming, Jesus says that you know that the end is coming up and that, that, that summertime is nigh. And listen, it's no different, church, than what happened yesterday. What happened to us all yesterday for a whole week? Weather is coming. Weather is coming. Weather is coming. And we prepare for it. You get helmets. You get batteries. You get flashlights. You get food. You get water. You get a phone that's charged. You do all of these things. You clean out storm pits. You do all of this stuff in order to do what? To prepare for your family. Right? And then all of a sudden you have these crazy people that say, Well, nothing happened. Told you we shouldn't have done that. Well, something happened for three people yesterday. Something happened in other counties today, or yesterday. Something happened and tore up churches that I know of in Arkansas and other places. And you say, well, Brother Steve, it really doesn't matter. I'm just going to go to church. I'm just going to be good, and I'm going to do all these things. Well, what if you knew the truth? And what if you knew these things were coming? Would you not look at your brother or your sister or your daughter or your son or your mom or your dad or your husband and your wife, and would you not be drawn to say, I want you to go with me? I want you to go with me to the, with the Lord. I want you to, listen, I don't want you to be here when all of these bad things take place. See, Revelation is not about all bad things. Revelation is a warning that God's judgment will come someday, but, but we have a way out. So back in the days when they built the tabernacle, and I'm going to just leave this up here and we'll preach the rest of the day on this. Back when they had the days of the tabernacle, this was when God first started doing what? He instituted that he was going to have atonement for their sins and that blood was going to be shed. But it wasn't just about, Brother Craig, just the blood, just the lambs without spot, without blemish. You know how it all started? God told Moses to build me a place. Now I want you to listen to this love that I may dwell among men and women, humanity. You know what it is? God says... Will you build me a home so that I can come and to be with you? That's what God did when he built the tabernacle. It was never about all the gold and the ornaments and the stones and how big we could make the temple. It was all about God said, listen, he loves you so much. He said, I want to have fellowship with you. God says, I want to come to your place. I want to come. What does it say? He stands at the door and he knocks. Brother Jack, he says, if any man will open, I will come in. I will sup with him. What that means is I will have fellowship with him. 
He said, I want you to build me a place. The tabernacle is important to us, church, because it defines actually what takes place in us now. Because when they built that tabernacle in the first days, and it wasn't very big, it was 120 feet depth, about 60 feet, maybe 40 feet that was wide. It had an altar outside they sacrificed on. It had a water laver that they washed their hands. It had a menorah lampstand inside, table of showbread on the right, an altar of incense to pray up to God, and then that Ark of the Covenant where our sins were dealt with. All of those things. But then the Bible says that David said, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a permanent place. I don't want to wander around anymore like they did in the wilderness with tabernacles, but I want to build you a place, a, a house that's permanent. You know what God told him? Now listen, wouldn't, wouldn't you, you wouldn't think this. He said, no. Well, God, you wanted Moses to build that place and do all of these things, you know. He says, you can't do it because he declared him a king and a king of war and a warrior. And he said, your hands have shed too much blood. Not innocent blood, but blood. And he says, but your son will. And the Bible teaches us that Solomon took that over. And in 968 B.C., Solomon constructed a temple. Had cedars of Lebanon. It had stone out of the quarry of Solomon. It was beautiful. This thing was huge. But understand something. Are you with me this morning? Are you still with me? I haven't lost you, have I? All right, Listen. I want you to understand something. Babylon in those days was huge. Do you know how big Babylon was? It was 15 miles squared. The city of Babylon was 15 miles by 15 miles by 15 miles. And some of you go, well, that ain't big. Birmingham's bigger than that. <laughs> You're, we're, we won't, it was like 1600 B.C. You know what I mean? 15 miles by 15 miles. Get this. You know how high their walls were? 350 feet tall. <laughs> You're not coming over that. They were 87 feet thick. At the bottom, as they grew up to the top, that they actually could have chariots, they could have races, they could have catapults and all of that. It was a defense system. Tabernacle, just a little old rinky-dink tent system. But God protected the children of Israel. God didn't allow them to be harmed, amen, because of the word of God. But then Solomon said, I, I want to build the house of God. And he built one that was great. Wes, he built this thing that was beautiful, that when he dedicated it, he said all people from all lands can come here and pray to Jehovah God. But then, as we know, what happened to Solomon's temple? The Babylonians came in because they thought they were greater, and they destroyed the temple. You know what they did? They took all the gold vessels out of it. Let me tell you what they did. They took the golden vessels out of it, and they went and drank wine in it and got drunk. They took God's holy things and turned them into sinful things. Right? And listen, God judged the Babylonians. Nobody could break their ranks, Brother Bill, but King Cyrus comes in. He's the king of the Persians, and as he comes in, what does he do? He comes in through the water system, and he goes straight to the king's room and kills the king, Nebuchadnezzar. It's done, and he takes over the kingdom. And he tells all of those Israelites that were there for 70 years because their temple was destroyed. Stay with me. Destroyed their temple. He tells them, you can go back home. And you can build it. And there was two witnesses. There were two guys. One by the name of Zerubbabel and another by the name of Joshua the high priest. They went back with 42,000 people and they went to rebuild the temple again. You know what God did? God touched the heart of King Cyrus. That didn't mean that he was saved. It meant God moved the heart of King Cyrus. Let me tell you something. God can move the heart of anybody. 
And he moved the heart of King Cyrus, and you know what he did? He said, here, take the golden vessels that belong to the temple of God back with you. Amen. Got it all back, and they went back, and they started doing it. You know what they did? They took a line, and they drew it out. And they drew out the bottom there, Uncle Ronald, when they laid that plumb bob out there. It's actually in Zechariah chapter 4. If you were here Wednesday, you know what I'm talking about. And he drew that plumb line out there, and he straightened everything out. They built the foundation. They laid the chief cornerstone. Amen. Glory to God. (laughs) He laid the chief cornerstone. And then you'll understand what it says, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, if you understand Scripture. Here he is now, laid it out. They rebuilt it all. They built the altar. All this stuff started happening. Nehemiah got involved, built the walls. Listen, Ezra got involved and come back with the word of God, the priest, the scribe, and began to preach. He sat down one time and plucked his beard out and pulled his hair out because the people wasn't doing right. I'm not going to have to go any further into that, am I? Listen. And the temple was rebuilt, but then all of a sudden, hang with me. Brother Brandon, y'all go ahead and come on. Whenever that temple was rebuilt, they never really established true worship. They came out of bondage, but they never really established, Sister Julie, true worship. The Israelites just kind of drifted around. And all of a sudden, there was this guy by the name of Alexander the Great. Everybody that knows history, you'd understand him. He comes in, young man, dies at 32 years old, 32 years of age. Well, when he comes in, he is conquering. Listen, he's conquering empires left and right. And when he comes in so swift and so fast, he gets burned out, and he dies at a young age. And he takes all that land that was in that area, and he gives it to his four generals, Seleucid, Ptolemy, all of these others, uh, Cassander, all of the ones, and gives all the land away. And whenever the Ptolemaic, or whatever you want to call him, Ptolemy, and that general, Brother, Brother Ricky, was there ruling in Jerusalem, something happened. Stay with me. Something happened. You know what it was? A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came in. He was actually the fourth, not the third, but the fourth. And when he came in, and ruled over them, over the Israelites, and that temple being rebuilt, Jerubbabel, all of that stuff being done. Do you know what he did? He brought in false worship. <coughs> the children of Israel would not have touched the pigs, but Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple of the holy God and defied him. And he tore down what was supposed to be in the holiest of holies, which would be the Ark of the Covenant, which was not there at that time. And he put an altar to Zeus, a pagan god. And you know what he did? He took a pig and he offered it as a sacrifice. And Daniel called it a desecration of desolation. He said it was an abomination of desolation. And you say, well, Brother Steve, well, that was when it all took place then. So we don't need to worry or think about the temple being rebuilt. But if you move with me to Matthew 24, you'll hear Jesus saying that the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel, you know what he says? He says it will take place. See, Antiochus Epiphanes was what? That nearsighted prophecy vision. But the farsighted is that the Antichrist is going to do it. And you say, Brother Steve, How does all of this tie together with me? What does it matter? What does it really matter? Stay with me. Don't don't leave me. What does it really matter? When God told John, measure out with that rod that was like a reed and measure out the temple. 
What did he tell him? He said, measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. The next verse actually says, don't measure the outer court because it will be trodden under the foot of Gentiles. Did you know that the outer court of the temple since the day Nebuchadnezzar overran it and destroyed it has always been under the foot of the Gentiles? It's never been the Israelites their own. And you say, well, what does it matter? When he told him to measure it out, how many of you own land? Anybody in here own pieces of property or land or houses? You've had them appraised? Everybody in here is poor. We have nothing. We have no people that own anything. Come on, stay with me. Get off Facebook. Stay with me. You have to have those things surveyed. If you go out and buy a piece of property, you need a survey on that piece of property to do what? First of all, to state that it is yours. That it belongs to you. And the second reason that you have a survey is to do what? To be able to mark the boundaries of what belongs to you so that when you're ready to do with it what you want to do with it, you can do with it what you want to do with it without Steve coming over saying you can't do that with it. Y'all got that? God said, John, measure it out. Why would God need a measurement? If God is God, why would he need a measurement? Because, church, listen to me, he was claiming it. Can you not understand? He was claiming it. And he was saying, this place, this temple, and this altar, and the people that worship therein, you know what he was saying? They belong to me. I survey them because they belong to me. This area that I'm measuring out belongs to me. And I am about, Brother Jack, he says, I'm about to do a work with it that no one else can come against. He said, it is mine. Which shows us the two points of today is this. Number one, when worship comes in, it belongs to God above. The Antichrist could do nothing with the Temple Mount. The Muslim can do nothing with the Temple Mount. The Arminians can do nothing with the Temple Mount. You can do nothing with that Temple Mount. Listen, worship belongs and ownership belongs to God. Our worship should not be given to our wife or to our husband. Our worship should not be given to our children. Our worship should not be given to a football team or a baseball team or a basketball team. But our worship can only be given unto God before God Almighty. He says, I've measured out the place. He said, I've measured out the altar and I've measured out the people. And you say, what does that mean? The Bible says now Paul declared unto us through the Holy Spirit of God that you, you and me and you and you and you are the temple of God. And he says to us, listen, our lives have been staked as a claim unto the Lord. We don't belong to ourselves. You know what the problem with majority of American Christianity today is? Is you want to go to heaven. But you don't want to give your life to God. You want all the benefits without any kind of plan or action to say, God, you are above me and you, Lord, I am yours and I belong to you. You want to do what you want? Say what you want, act like you want, and we can't do that. That's why the Word of God says we are not your own, but you are bought with a price. Not with the blood of lambs or with goats or bulls, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Lamb was without spot and without blemish, Brother Seth. Listen, worship belongs to God above. No one else deserves our worship.
No one else deserves us to bend a knee or to bow to them. Listen, worship God. Worship belongs to Him alone. Alone. Worship belongs all to Him. Antiochus Epiphanes IV stood in there, and what did he want? He wanted worship. King Herod and that temple that was built, that was beautiful, had gold crown all the way around it. Do you know why he did that? Because he was crazy. He was a madman that killed his own brothers and his sons in order to keep being king. He was crazy. He was evil and he was wicked. He had a mastermind in how to build and architectural things. But do you know why? Because he wanted his name to be remembered forever. And he knew that his name, Brother Craig, would never be remembered for doing good things because he was such an evil person. So he made his mark on this earth by building things. Building beautiful buildings and temples and ornate and and all of this stuff. Why? Because he wanted to be worshipped. You know what? When they take my fat body and they put it in a casket. And I am where I am. I don't even know where I'll be at. As far as my body, it'll be here. You can wrap it in a cloth. You can put it in a wooden box. You can do whatever with it that you want to do. But when you walk by, I promise you now, I don't care if you know anything about me. I don't care if you know my history. I don't care if you know what I went through. I don't care if you knew all of the story about Steve. I don't care about that. When you come by my casket, my words that I would hope that would be said was that that man worshipped God alone. And that that man had a heart for Jesus. And you ought to know the Jesus that that man knew. Amen? If you'd say that, I'd try my best, if possible, to give you a high five when you came by. So many people today are talking about, I want to leave a legacy and I want to leave a mark and I want to do this. And I used to whenever I was young. No, I don't care if I ever leave a mark on this earth. I don't care if people ever write a story about me or if they ever make a documentary movie about me or anything at all. I don't care if I ever have any hair the rest of my life. I don't care. No, what it is is that worship, true worship does not belong to a man or a woman here. It belongs to God who is above and belongs to God alone. Him. So I'm going to ask you this question. You say, how does it all apply, Brother Steve? When they rebuild that temple, there are going to be people that are going to attend the services of that temple, and they're going to bow down, and they're going to be worshiping. They're going to worship the image of the Antichrist and all of this stuff. And my desire is, is that you would not do that, that you would not think that you need to wait for that moment, but that you would understand right now that you can come before a holy God and fall down upon your knees, and you can worship Him. You can come, and you can say, God, I'm thirsty for you. God, I'm so hungry for you. Lord, I'm so desperate for you. All I want is more and more and more of you. And not make it a resolution. No, don't make it a resolution or a New Year's promise. That you would say, God, as I've surveyed all things in my life and looked around, you alone and you above, you, it's all about you. That's worship. That's what worship is. When I ask you before you leave the church this morning to worship Him, to glorify Him, and to tell Him that He alone is worthy. Father, we love you. We ask you to please, Lord. It's been prayed over and over and over. Only you can do it. God, I pray for my friends that are here, young and old, that God, their experience with you of worship is not just some kind of one-time feeling where they got all emotional and 
all of that, and now they just sit in their pews. Lord, not interested in the Word, not going into the Word. I pray that they would understand it's a daily thing. It's an everyday thing to worship you. It's an everyday thing to work for you and to labor for you. God, will you please, as been prayed, Lord, I pray again. Lord, you do the work that we can't do, and you move on hearts because we can't do it. A preacher can preach, a singer can sing. And that's as far as we go. God, it's through the Holy Spirit that you draw people to yourself. It's through the Father who loves us, through the Son who gave his life for us, and through the Holy Spirit that speaks to us, that you're able to move people. So God, I pray and I place all of that, Lord, in your hands and in your power. Lord, I understand that if you can't move us, there'll be no moving. I pray that people's hearts will be drawn back to worship. Christ's name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would just be in a heart of prayer. Brother Brandon's going to begin singing in just a second. Just be in the heart of prayer, being reverent. Would you stand with us this morning?